Are you ready to take your intermittent fasting lifestyle to the next level? There's nothing better than community to help with that. In the Delay Don't Deny community, we all embrace the clean fast, and there's just the right support for you as you live your intermittent fasting lifestyle. You can connect directly with me in the Ask Jen group, and I'll answer all of your questions personally. If you're new to intermittent fasting or recommitting to the intermittent fasting lifestyle, join the 28-Day Fast Start group. After your fast start, join us for support in the first-year group. Need tips for long-term maintenance? We have a place for that. There are many more useful spaces beyond these, and you can interact in as many as you like. Visit jenstevens.com community to join us. An annual membership costs just over a dollar a week when you do the math. If you aren't ready to fully commit for a year, join for a month, and you can cancel at any time. If you know you'll want to stay forever, we also have a lifetime membership option available. IF is free. You don't need to join our community to fast. But if you're looking for support from a community of like-minded intermittent fasters, we're here for you at jenstevens.com community. That's jenstevens.com community. Achieving my long-term goals is more about creating healthy habits and less about quick fixes. And that's why I love both intermittent fasting and daily harvest. Tim Spector, a gut health expert and founder of Zoe, and Dr. B, gastroenterologist and author of Fiber Fueled, recommend that you aim for at least 30 unique plant foods per week. Daily Harvest helps make it easy. One of my favorite options is the sweet potato and wild rice hash harvest bowl. With Daily Harvest, I'm getting tons of plant-based options built on organic fruits and vegetables that are easy to prep and free of weird ingredients such as fillers, seed oils, and added sugars. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com ifstories to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com ifstories for $30 off your first box and free shipping. Daily harvest.com slash is stories. Welcome to Intermittent Fasting Stories. I'm your host, Jen Stevens, author of the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat, as well as the book that started it all, Delay Don't Deny. I lost over 80 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting after learning how to delay my eating rather than denying myself the delicious foods I want to eat. Now, Who's ready to hear an inspirational intermittent fasting story? That's why we're here. So let's get excited to talk to today's guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 367 of Intermittent Fasting Stories. Today, I'm here with Adam Cole. Adam lives in Atlanta, Georgia, where he is a music educator, an author, and a podcaster, and he is also married to Teresa Cole, who was a guest not that long ago on episode 356. They actually worked together at the Willow School in Atlanta. So welcome, Adam. Thanks, Jen. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, you know, I like to start by asking what brought you to intermittent fasting and when was that? Although I am going to want to talk about your work as an author and a podcaster, just because I always love to hear about that. But first, let's start with what brought you to intermittent fasting and when was that? My wife brought me to it. I had a feeling. 
Yep, and I needed it. I guess she had been doing it in secret for a couple of years, didn't tell me. And then when she started to talk about it, I started to think maybe it was something that would benefit me as well. So I joined her on that. And I've been doing that two or three years now. Love it. I think it's funny that I've actually heard plenty of people say that their spouse or their significant other doesn't know they're doing it. They don't maybe know how to bring it up. Or (laughs) That's not the first time I've heard this. So how long had she done it? A couple of years then before you got involved? Yes. Yeah. She'd been doing it. I think I only found out about the secret fasting just about a month ago, I think, when we talked about this podcast coming up. And yeah, she had been doing it for quite a while before she mentioned it. We'd done other fasts together. I think we did Whole30 together a couple times and a number of because we both have food issues. So right. it's something that we share. But this is something she didn't want to talk about, I guess. And at some point, I, I don't remember how it came up, but I said, that sounds like something I'd like to try. Well, you know, it makes sense. So many of us do have food issues for whatever reason, from little comments we heard as children or whatever it might be. And, you know, we're so tired of trying things and them not working out that we get tired of telling people that we're trying something new. And you can also feel really optimistic and hopeful, but also scared. And so you don't want to share it till you know if it's going to work. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, it was no problem. Yeah. I love that. So let's back up a little bit. You know, let's talk about, you know, your early years when you first started to struggle and what Mm -hmm. your life was like leading up to intermittent fasting, you know, where those food issues came from, how they got planted, because they all got planted in a somewhere along the way. Sure. Well, first of all, you might find it interesting that I had actually been fasting my whole life because I'm Jewish and observant. And so we always observed a fast on Yom Kippur. And I started doing that probably when I was 12 or 13. And I, despite the fact that I haven't always been so observant, it comes and goes throughout my life. I've been more or less observant. I have always observed the fast because I really enjoyed it. I found it to be a good thing. It seemed to focus me and, you know, it wasn't always easy. So remind me of what a Yom Kippur fast looks like. How's it structured? Okay. Well, it starts in the evening of Yom Kippur, which is eight days after the Jewish New Year. And then it goes to the next evening. And it tends to be about 25 hours long. And you're not supposed to drink during a Yom Kippur fast, which makes it a little more difficult. It's a complete fast. So, and that's it. Yeah, that's a lot. Dry fasting is, I guess, the official term. It does sound really hard because, huh. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Nothing at all. I've got my water right here. I've had my coffee. Exactly. (laughs) When I'm fasting and I can drink, it's like, this is no big deal. It's heaven, right. You know, of course, you know, Ramadan is a period of fasting where they also have dry fasting every single day. So it's it's interesting that the religions have that in common. But every major religion has periods of fasting in it, which I think is so funny when people talk about fasting as a fad. I'm like, well, it's like the most ancient fad ever. Right. (laughs) So you could do it, though. You could do it because of your Yom Kippur fasting. Right. I wasn't afraid to try it. It was not going to be a stressor for me because at that point I had done... There are actually four fasts in Judaism. If you're really observant, there's three or four opportunities to do it. And as I've gotten older, I've done more of those. And of course, now it's a snap. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So easy. It's like, oh, another fast. Got it. Uh, (laughs) But but, you had uh, never thought of it as anything to help with weight management or food issues. It was just, it was a religious observation. Yeah. And I want to be clear too, to your listeners, since they can't see me, that for me, it's never been about weight management. I am a very thin man. And, uh, To some extent, I'm probably the guy a lot of your listeners wish they were or think they wish they were right? because I was able to eat anything I wanted as much as I wanted and I didn't really gain weight. And I want to make sure everybody knows that going in, that I wanted to be on this podcast for that reason 
first of all, I'm not passing myself off as someone with the same issues as someone right. with a problem. Not at all. I have never had a problem getting into a seat at an amusement park. You know, all these things that people with weight issues go through. I've never been through that. So there's a certain pain I'm unaware of. But there are other things I have been through and they were severe and they were damaging. And I wanted to share those just perhaps so that I could feel a part of a group and maybe other people could find some commonality with me. It's difficult when you are thin and you have food issues because there's nobody there for you. You're not going to go to a Weight Watchers group because they're just going to laugh at you or hate you. Like, what are you doing here? You know, everybody wants to be you. So, you know, you tend to deal with it alone, which is one of the more difficult things about my aspect of it. Well, I think that's really important. I'm glad that you shared that because you're right. You know, most people you would think about with food issues, let me say it like that. When you think of someone with food issues, you make assumptions. You make assumptions that, oh, if someone has food issues, they must be overweight or they've been struggling with their weight. But having food issues is so much more than just the size of your body. Instead, you're, I would imagine your issues were emotional and struggling in that sort of a way. What, what? Both. There were okay. body issues too. I was thin and tended to be weaker. And I would have liked to have been a bigger person. I would have liked to have been stronger so that I wouldn't have been bullied as much. Right. Just so that I would have felt like I could take care of myself. I definitely grew up feeling weak and didn't like the way I looked. You know, that was one part of it. But the bigger part of it became emotional, that I experienced severe mood swings and manic to depressive, not enough to be medicated, not enough to be diagnosed, but there they were. And it didn't get better as I got older. And I did connect it with food. I left sugar for a good 10 years, just sugar. And then I eventually came back to it. I tried a lot of different things to manage food. It was pointed out to me by a doctor that food would be related to the mood swings and the energy depletion and all that. And so I've tried many, many things to manage that. And so that was the primary hope I had with intermittent fasting was that this might be the thing that could make a difference. I want to circle back. I want to explore that, the mood. But I also mm -hmm. want to circle back to what you said, because it, of course, made me think of my husband, Chad. He always has been really, really lanky and lean and slim. And what you said reminds me of what he said to me when we were like just dating and early in our marriage, just like that. He could not put on the weight and he felt self-conscious about his body and what you said about feeling like you're weak. You know, I remember he was actively trying to, you know, bulk up his muscles and going to do weightlifting and he just has a body frame that's lanky and tall and thin. It reminds us that when you're on either side of the norm, <laughs> it feels wrong. Yeah. There are other issues around food, too. You had asked about food as right. in my childhood. I can tell you that eating was generally a miserable experience for me. My mom was very ill. She had multiple sclerosis, and she died of it when I was about 30 years oh, gosh. old. So she remained extremely thin as well, and that put a connection between illness and thinness in my head from a very young age, enough that it probably terrified me. It was very stressful to think about, you know, eating. And of course, she couldn't taste her food right. It Multiple sclerosis messed with her brain. So all the food tasted weird. She would pick at her food and push it around. Our meals were pretty unpleasant experiences. The family meal was contrived and the conversation was stilted. And my joy in food was basically because I could, eating a pound bag of potato chips, even though I felt horrible afterwards, I could do it. And I knew I wouldn't have any other consequences. Or a couple of chipwich sandwiches in front of the TV. I could shove food in my face that tasted good. That was where my joy came from, from food. Didn't come from tasting it particularly. Didn't come from being with people. The meal 
was not pleasant. Indulging, stuffing my face, that was the escape. That was the good part. Wow. And, you know, I'm thinking about it, of course, as someone who struggled with weight. And we think about, we are, like I said, we're wearing the consequences of that because we see it on our bodies, but you did not gain the weight. So you just had that feeling of, well, I, you know, I know this doesn't feel right, but it also is okay. It's like there were no consequences. Even like a superpower, maybe. Hey, this is something I can actually do. (laughs) I can eat all this food. (laughs) I've got a younger brother like that. One of my two brothers is just like that. He cannot put on weight no matter what he does. But Right. Well, I did end up putting on weight later, I should say. By the time I hit my late 40s, the way I was eating did start to change my body. And I'm not going to say I gained a lot of weight, but I did stop fitting into my clothes and mm-hmm. I did start feeling it. And it wasn't, I actually liked that I was a little heavier. I liked the way it looked, but it felt awful. It wasn't good. My body didn't like it. It was like, oh, this is interesting. This is new for me. Your body was showing you that it was no longer going <laughs> to make Time to make a change with that. But the way that you felt, and even though you liked the way you looked with a little more weight on you, you didn't feel good. Right. That's really, really important. So let's circle back to mood. At what point in your life did you realize the connection between food and mood or just the issues that you were feeling? Probably, I think it was a chiropractor that pointed out to me that sugar or dairy might be a problem for me. It was mostly an energy level thing because here I was 25 and I was just having all kinds of problems sleeping and I was having trouble with my energy levels. And he said, you know, it's sugar. You need to cut the sugar out, which I was like, what? I can't do that. Right. (laughs) don't make me do this. You know, I did. And it helped some. It helped some. But that's where I started to think maybe even obsessively. Now, I'd already been obsessing about eating food, and now I was obsessing about not eating food. And for the next 20 years or 25, now I'm obsessing about, did I eat something I shouldn't have? How do I feel now? I've got one of those brains that it's like a problem-solving brain, and I got to solve the problem. So, you know, I just fixated on food Now I've got a double fixation. I need the love of the food. Oh my God, what did I eat? What is it doing to me right this second? You know. Wow. Yeah, it's like, could we go back to a simpler time where people just ate food? You know, in my book, Feast Without Fear, that I wrote in 2017, you know, I was exploring the idea of, you know, what foods are best for our bodies, really. And then basically we realize it's bio individuality, we're different. But if you go back in time when people just ate the food, they ate the food that was there and it was real food and it wasn't junk and it didn't have refined anything in it. And if we started talking about all this, they'd be like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) What country are you from? What planet? Exactly. Because we're just supposed to eat the food that is available without worrying about it. Feast seasons when they're there, like when the crop comes in or when you hunt something. And it just it's so foreign. We are in this modern world of crazy problems that we brought on ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, when I say we brought it on ourselves, I mean, you know, you and I did not. It's the food industry and just modern society mm. in general. So we no longer worry about famines. We worry about overconsumption of foods that are not nourishing as well. But then there's that stress. So now you're stressed about what you're eating and also what you're not eating. We all face stress in our daily lives. What if the answer to a better stress response is in one key nutrient? I'm talking about magnesium and specifically magnesium breakthrough by by optimizers. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could have a positive effect on our stress response. But don't take my word for it. Here's a quote from a 2020 issue of the scientific journal Nutrients. 
Results suggest that stress could increase magnesium loss, causing a deficiency, and, in turn, magnesium deficiency could enhance the body's susceptibility to stress, resulting in a magnesium and stress vicious circle. I only recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress resilience and better sleep. Simply go to bioptimizers.com slash ifstories promo code IFSTORIES10 to get your magnesium breakthrough and find out this month's gift with purchase. That's bioptimizers.com slash IFSTORIES, promo code IFSTORIES10. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know what a fan I am of Dr. Tim Spector and the work he's doing with Zoe. I was first introduced to his work in 2015, and I've been following his research ever since. What I love most about the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is that they have weekly interviews with world-leading experts who explain how their latest research can benefit your health. Recently, I was thrilled to finally meet him face-to-face as we recorded an episode for the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, and this episode aired on on April 11th. We had a chance to talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study, and I had the opportunity to explain the clean fast to Jonathan, which may explain why he didn't enjoy his prior experiences with fasting. Search for Zoe Science and Nutrition on your podcast player or on YouTube to hear the latest episode, and don't forget to look for the April 11th episode to hear me, Tim, and Jonathan talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study. Right. And not getting any closer because, you know, all the tweaking and the twiddling and the whole 30 and nothing wrong with the whole 30, but it didn't do what it was supposed to do for me. None of these things did, you know, leaving out this kind of food, leaving out dairy, leaving out that, going all meat, you know, none of these things really changed anything for me. And then ultimately I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic a couple of years ago. I'm like, what, me? That doesn't make any sense. You know, what's going on here? So what was your reasoning? Like, why did you, like, I know Whole30 was initially designed to be an elimination protocol. So Mm -hmm. you eliminated the things that were most problematic for the largest number of people for a period of like 30 days, right? That's what that 30 means. And then you reintroduce them to see Mm -hmm. what may or may not be a problem. Although I think most people use the Whole30, not in the way it was intended. They use it as like a way to lose weight. <laughs> it's like right, a right. diet. And that's not but how But I was using it, it that way. I used to, it exactly try, as you described. So you were trying to figure out sensitivities. So you would yes. eliminate the things. And then when you would add them back, did you add them one at a time and try all Yeah, them? I did. And, and, but you never found a difference. In support of Whole30, I will say this. I did it twice. The first okay. time, it was interesting because I was really aware. I came face to face with some emotional connections to food. I'm like, okay. Right. I really just discovered I don't like to eat. Wow. I didn't know this about myself, but I actually hate eating and wish I didn't have to do it anymore. That was so interesting. All 30 was where I started to recognize just how much hatred there was in this eating relationship. And so I appreciate having had that experience, but reintroduction was a bit of a blur for me. It didn't make a difference. The abstinence helped a little, but it was not easy to piece it apart. Yeah. And I am a fan of Whole30 used as it is intended as an elimination protocol to try to figure out. And some people have found amazing results of like, oh, I really do have a problem with dairy. You know, you don't realize till you yeah. reintroduce it that you do if you've never had a break before. But that's so interesting that you realize that you didn't want to eat because yes. eating brought up just too many emotional connect. What was it? What was it about yeah, the that's eating? that's it. I mean, there wasn't anything joyful about it. And no all joy. it was ever doing... It was just, if I could have gotten by without it, I would have gladly done that. I'm I'm tired of having this struggle every time I decide whether or not to eat, what to eat. I don't know how to eat. 
it's just exhausting. I'd just be done with it, you know? What do you think set the foundation for the not knowing what to eat? Was it that uh, conversation about the sugar 25 or however many I mean, years ago? That- probably not. I mean, no, I don't know. I think, I mean, the conversation about the sugar probably kicked it into high gear. But I think, you know, I was wondering about food the whole time that I yeah. was, all the time I was alive. You know, what's going on? I had a friend, he was allergic to dairy when I was a kid. And I started thinking maybe I'm allergic to dairy. It's always been on my mind. It's always been a part of the conversation. Right. And, you know, watching your mother struggle with her health and not really wanting to eat, that probably played a role. Did she avoid any foods because they weren't working for her body? No, but I should mention my father on the other side. Here's a guy who just won't eat 17 different kinds of foods. Like, I mean, a huge list of things he just didn't like. And it wasn't for any reason except he didn't like them. You couldn't have peanuts around him. He didn't like cucumbers. He didn't like this. He didn't like that. And so a lot of our, and of course, even worse, both my parents were like spice averse. So like we'd sit down to eat and maybe the meal might actually taste like something. And they'd go, ooh, spicy. And then it would never come back. It would never, it's like, what What happened? That was good. My sister and I discovered ragu tomato sauce from the, the jar. Oh my Lord, like, yes. This is heaven. Wow. This tastes so good because the spaghetti sauce we've been eating all our lives was unseasoned sauce that was just the worst. So, <laughs> okay, well, that's so interesting. So, you did not have people, you know, the adults in your life were not modeling joy with food and eating no. as a celebration, and food is delicious. Wow, this just goes to show that the messages we get as kids they wire themselves in there. Yeah. Now yeah. let's it's fast not forward. Like we never had any good food. We did have some good meals. There were some tasty meals, and I remember them. But it was very inconsistent. It wasn't like sometimes the meals were good, sometimes they weren't. It was unpredictable. And when they weren't, they were really bad. So, you know, the inconsistency of it may have been as hard as the absence of it. And just the fact that there were no feelings of joy. Like you never saw your mom and your dad like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. This is, you know, like they were not. that's not fair. Okay. My mom did love to eat. I'm going to. Like when we went to restaurants, she would constantly try to get me to eat what she was eating. This is so good. Please try it. And I would always say, no, I don't want to eat your food. So Uh, no, I don't want to misrepresent. There was a sense, at least with my mother, of joy of good food. But it was always at restaurants, typically. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that because it was just a struggle more so at home. I think so. I mean, let's put it this way. The food was the issue. This tastes good. This is good food. That a meal was supposed to be pleasant, that a meal was supposed to be joyful, that was really kind of absent. Not that they didn't want it to be, but it just right. really And was your mom the cook of the household? No, because she was sick and because right. my dad worked full time, we would usually have somebody preparing meals for us at some point, okay. somewhere or another. Well, it sounds like they were just probably not a very good cook. <laughs> it depended. It sometimes the they were good at what they did. Sometimes they weren't. But it was a stream of people coming through our house. So you sometimes it was really good and sometimes it was not. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Atlanta. I've been here my whole okay. life. Fourth generation Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. Well, gosh, <laughs> I was going to say, you must not have been in the South because we've got good food. But I really, it really does depend. It depends. My great grandfather got off the boat right in my neighborhood. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I'm wrecking <laughs> yeah, my, all your theories here. 
You're wrecking them all. Yeah, no, my family's been around the South for a long, long time as well. So, but my grandparents, both of my grandmothers were like the Southern, they're both South Carolina women, the Southern cook, making great biscuits, great fried chicken. That's my family, you know, wonderful llama beans, your butter beans straight out of the garden. That's what I grew up with. So we had some of that and it would depend on who was cooking. Yeah. Um, Sometimes we would get some of that really good Southern cooking and it was really wonderful. Maybe it's the Atlanta part. Were you all always in the city, in the Atlanta area? We were. And I think being Jewish is also a part of that because there's a slightly different approach to food in Judaism. Some of it's ceremonial and some of it's a kind of a uh, holdover from the shtetl where, you know, your attitude towards food is, did you get enough instead of, Ah. you know, really well prepared. There are great Jewish recipes and great Jewish cooks. The meal is like what you cook is the priority, not how good it tastes. That's so interesting. Really. Okay. All right. So let's fast forward to when you started fasting. You were still experiencing the mood issues with Mm -hmm. the eating. Yes, that's right. Well, the first thing I did was I decided to give up breakfast because I thought that would be pretty easy. And what a difference. It was just great. Suddenly, my energy level went up just like that. And I didn't miss breakfast at all. I missed breakfast food. I missed Mm -hmm. biscuits. I missed the pancakes that I would make a lot. But... It wasn't hard to give it up. I mean, the difference was stark. I was like, this is much better. And I generally don't eat breakfast anymore. I don't miss it one bit. Yeah. Chad, the same way. He ate breakfast because he thought he had to. He thought he should. And, you know, you mentioned you were eating biscuits. You were eating pancakes. He would have, you know, muffins or a bowl of cereal. And then he would drag through the rest of the morning. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love those huge, like, muffins that are the size of, like, your skull, Uh you know. That was my jam for sure. And, cake. And my wife's, yes. Oh, sure. If there's a, a cake lying around, I'll have No, I'm some saying around. muffins are cake. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Muffins. I just gave myself away. <laughs> no, the big muffins are cake. That's just true. Without, That's without true. the frosting. They're delicious. So. <laughs> and Teresa is a very good cook, my wife, and she would bake many delicious things too. So there was no getting away from them. That still happens. Well, that's good. But just in your eating window. So you started just by skipping breakfast and you noticed right. you felt better immediately. I did. Yeah, it was a big difference. And that took care of me for a while, for a good you know, year, year and a half. I was still experiencing the mood swings, though. It took care of some of the energy issues. I didn't miss breakfast, and I didn't feel like I had missed the most important meal of the day, quote unquote. But I was still experiencing highs and lows, especially around sugar. That was the big demon, and it was very hard to eliminate, and it's antisocial to eliminate sugar. It's very difficult to, to take sugar out of your life. Suddenly, everybody's looking at you like, well, aren't you going to have some dessert? What's wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. You're making it, you're ruining it for everybody. Have some dessert. It's true. People are weird when you're not consuming whatever they're consuming. Like I've stopped drinking alcohol completely. And I was just at an event for five days, dry farm wines poured everywhere. The founder of dry farm wines was there. And, you know, it was like, everyone is drinking these high quality wines. And I'm like, no, I'm not having any. And like, we were getting ready to do a toast and they were coming around and pouring. And I, I was like, finally just turned my glass upside down. I'm like, do not give me any of that. I literally don't want it. But then people are looking at you like you're crazy. Yeah. Like you're judging them. Almost. Yeah, I don't care if you have it, but it makes me feel like crap. And I'm kind of mad about that. I'll be honest. I wish I could have had a glass of champagne because I love the taste of it. But I don't feel good when I drink. It's just like you figured out the sugar does not make you feel your best. And if you decide not to have dessert, then I think it makes other people feel bad. Like you said, like you're judging them. You're like, I don't care if you have it. 
or maybe they're embarrassed that they have to eat it in front of me. Nobody likes to eat while someone else is not eating. It's just like... It feels weird. It feels weird because maybe they're making you late for something or, you know, what are you going to do while you have to be doing what other people are doing or you're not with them. Right. That's true. And we got to get out of our own heads with that. If we're the person who is saying no to doing the thing, it's okay to say no to doing something. Yeah. And the other person, make them feel okay to do it. Like, no, no, you have that. I'm fine sitting here. Yes. So you still were having the issue with sugars. Yeah. And I'll mention one other thing about my childhood that I forgot. You'd asked about good food and positive things about food. I will say that my mother used to bring home lots of great cakes, that there was always good pastries in the house. And that was, in a way, I think, part of the problem. You know, I mean, the joy around food was, oh, wow, check this amazing apple cake that you bought from an expensive bakery. This is really mm. good. You know, That was what was around, and that was where the joy. And, of course, you could eat that on the sly. No one was with you. You could eat, go cut a plate and go to your room and have maybe two pieces of it, you know. So, so that's, you do have those feelings of like those foods. Those oh, yeah, are the yeah. Ones. And also that the shame around eating them and yeah. the need to take it somewhere quiet and private and eat it where no one can see me because I'm going to have two pieces, you know, I'm there. Yeah, all the shame around it is quite poignant. You yeah. Know? It almost, there's a scene in a movie called, what's it called? It's a Nicolas Cage film where he's an alcoholic and he's dying. I'm trying to remember the name of the film. Is he with like a escort throughout yes. the movie? I can't yes. remember. Chad loved that movie and he was like, watch this movie. And I'm like, I kept falling asleep. That movie right. did not do it for me, but he really liked that movie. There's a scene at the beginning, he gets fired and he gets a big severance pay and he mm -hmm. goes to that liquor store and you know, yeah. he's going to drink himself to death. And he's just walking through that liquor store, whistling, having a good time, picking the stuff. That's the feeling. I recognize that feeling. That, you know, okay, I'm about to do something that's going to make me feel horrible. I can't wait to get that cake in me. Mm -mm. Wow. At my worst, I actually visited Alcohol Anonymous online just to read. And the same sorts of things people were saying about alcohol, it was the same. My experiences right. around it, it was an addiction. I came to recognize the sugar as an addiction. I've had a hard time with that idea and like, no, no, food can't be an addiction. But I've come to realize, yes, anything in our brains when we're having that shameful behavior and we're hiding it, any, just like if you go read it, like you said, about alcohol addiction, put anything in there. Maybe it's potato chips, maybe mm -hmm. it's sugar, maybe it's whatever it is that's lighting up your brain and that you can't stop and you feel the shame and you hide it and you sneak. I've come to realize it's, I mean, no one has like a banana addiction or, you know, a broccoli addiction. I mean, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say the word no one. We learn never say that. But rarely. It's ultra processed foods of some form or another that light up in our brain in a way that nature didn't intend for whatever reason. So after you realized that and you read about alcoholism, and you're like, that's all me, but with sugar. What did mm -hmm. you do? Well, I had a friend who was in recovery from alcohol addiction, and it was very helpful to have him. He did the whole thing where he went to, went off somewhere and had to detox and recover. He, he went that far down the hole. And we would have frequent discussions about it. It was very helpful for me to be able to have someone I could talk to about it. I'm experiencing this, you know, and yep, yep, yep. And here's what happened to me. Yep, yep, yep. So it was good to have a friend like that. And, you know, who took it seriously? He mentions that alcohol and sugar, I think, are off only by one molecule. They're very close chemically, so that it's really not that far away. So it was good to have something of a community, someone I could talk to about it. If anything, for me, it would be cheese. They have uh -huh. those casomorphines that yeah. actually do light your brain up in a similar kind of a way. It's like an 
similar to like the opioids. So I do like if I had like a big old certain kind of mozzarella in the house, I just want to eat it till it's gone. I just want to go back and have more and more and more. So I understand that through that regard. I'm there with you. Yeah. Yeah. So have you stopped with sugar completely or, you know, more sugar? No, no. Well, we should continue talking about intermittent fasting because there's a happy ending. All righty. So I guess the next part of the story is I read your book. Actually, after two years of intermittent fasting where I'm just basically, you know, I'm intermittent fasting and I'm doing what my wife does. She says, you're going on the podcast. You need to read her book. Which one did you read? Feast, fast, repeat. All right. Fast, feast, repeat. Excuse me. Yeah, that's all right. People say it all kind of ways. (laughs) I'm saying it first because feast is better, right? Well, the feast is important. All right. Fast, then you feast, then you repeat. Thank all you right, for correcting so me. That's all right. Oh, yeah. well, if I didn't, somebody would be looking for feast, fast, repeat. I know. <laughs> be like emailing so, me. or you know. <laughs> so I read your book and okay. I really enjoyed it. Very well Thank written. Thank you. It was an easy read and I thought, you know, I already know what it's going to have in it. Well, I didn't. I loved all the science and I thought it was just the right balance for me. I'm scientifically literate, but no scientist. And I was like, okay, she's done her homework. I feel confident about what I'm doing. And then I read something in your book that really changed something big for me. You were talking about the difference between fasting and a really clean fast. And you're talking about how, you know, just tasting something during the fasting part could make a difference. I'm like, what? Really? And I noticed one of the things I did when I was fasting, I take vitamin C. Okay. And I took these vitamin C tablets at night, like right before bed, and then first thing in the morning, which was right in the middle of my fast. And I said, well, I wonder if I stopped doing that, what would happen if I didn't taste anything during the clean fast? Lo and behold, it made a huge difference. It changed everything. It made a significant difference in the fast for me. And all of a sudden, my fasts felt better. They felt like they were doing more of what they were supposed to do. Like it was a genuine rest, a clean out. So now I'm much more careful about that. And I've even found, and I do want to talk about the longer fasts too, because those were helpful. We skipped that, but that's interesting. You'll find it interesting. Okay. But I do find now that during my, I try to keep my eating window as short as I can. It's hard because I teach piano lessons sometimes until seven at night. So, you know, I tend to do an eight sixteen. I would prefer to do a six eighteen if I could. But I definitely feel that I can keep that window closed, you know, and I think about it just like you talked about. My window is closed. It's different from I'm not going to eat this. And when I do eat, I'm finding now that I can tolerate the sugar more. Wow. I, I really do have, it's not perfect, but I'm more attuned to how I feel when I eat the sugar. There's less of a desire to eat. It's still there. If I eat too much, there's a little switch in my brain. I can feel it. There's this little thing. It's like click. I can feel the moment when I've had too much. And then then I start eating faster and then I can't stop. So interesting. Happens less. I'm more able to stop before I get to that point. And when I don't, I know that I've got this fast period where I'm going to be able to recover from it and recover more easily. I was using the 42-hour and the 72-hour fast as a means of resetting myself. Now I feel like the clean fast, I'm able to reset myself much more efficiently, much more regularly. Like every day. Yes. Like I really think every clean fast is such a difference versus, and I really want to highlight what you said, vitamin C. You know, we're like, well, it's just the vitamin C supplement. That's no big deal. It's good for me. But you felt it. You were taking it before bed. You were taking it in the morning and it made a difference in the experience of the fast. And if I had asked you before you read Fast Feast Repeat, 
if I had asked you about your fasting, you would have said, oh, it's fine. It's no problem until you took it out. And then you realize, oh, it was a problem and I didn't know. Yeah. For those that don't take C, it's a C pill and it's sour. It tastes mm -hmm. like something. Yeah. You taste it as it's going down. And you might think, well, I'm just swallowing it. It's no big deal. But you still get that little hit. Oh, I was chewing it oh. up. I oh, were you? I was tasting okay. it sour. You yeah, were definitely tasting it. So that's really important. I want people to keep that in mind. That little thing you might not think of, especially if the fast is harder than you think it should be. Yeah. There's something, you know, maybe you're drinking one of those cold brew coffees that has citric acid in it or natural flavors in there. You know, citric acid gives something a sour, tangy flavor. Bottled tea products, all those things can be accidental fast breakers. And then people realize it and they're like, oh my God, it changed everything when I stopped doing that. So, yeah. So it definitely feels more like a lifestyle now, like you mentioned, something I can actually own, a way to live instead of just something I'm doing and I hope it works. This is like, oh, no, this fits me. I like this. This feels good. I feel like I have choices. Agency, to be able to control how I eat, what I eat, you know, and if I choose to indulge, it really feels more like a choice now. It feels much safer to eat, I think is how I would sum it up. I'm glad you mentioned that before that was the challenge. The whole yes. idea of, should I eat this? Should I not eat that? Is this good for me? Is it bad for me? That makes it really hard to eat at all. Yes. Have you heard of orthorexia? No. Orthorexia is something, and it's kind of insidious, and it's not an actual diagnosis in, like anorexia and bulimia are, but it fits under the same category of eating disorders, although, like I said, it's not officially in the DSM, which is how they diagnose. It's like it fits under the other kind of category of eating disorders, and it's when people become really concerned with, you know, is their food clean enough? Is it good enough? Is it pure enough? And then they're afraid to eat and they won't go out to eat because the food might be tainted. And it's not the same as having a healthy diet. Like if someone is, I'm just going to say a vegan, right? If they choose to be a vegan and they're not eating any animal products for, re that's not orthorexia. But orthorexia is when you start to become obsessed with the idea of being pure and clean in your eating and it like interferes with your life. Mm, I think I resemble that to some extent. I wouldn't say yeah. I was all the way down the road on that, but that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a continuum and you can recognize that, huh, I'm starting to really think about this too much and you can like come back from it. Right. I don't think it's yeah. like forever, but you know, it, it's a real struggle in this day and age, especially because we have so many confusing messages about food and what's good and what's bad and morality assigned to it. And, you know, go on YouTube and start watching videos about food. You got the vegans on one side. Oh, but they're not. Then we got the raw vegans or, you know, oh, you got the whatever. Now I only eat fruit. And then but on the other side, it's keto. And then you've got the, oh, now they just only eat meat. Oh, and now we're only eating red meat. And oh, now we're only eating raw red meat. And it's just. I got one more for you. You can add the okay. Jewish thing because then there's the question of whether you keep kosher or not. Oh. Uh. <laughs> whole thing I was raised with. And I wasn't raised to keep kosher. My parents basically ate anything. But the question is always there before you. Every time you think about, are, should you eat this? Should you? And the rules are insane. You know, the level of detail you can go into about what you eat and whether it's pure or not, or whether it's appropriate, it's enough to drive you crazy. It has to do with like how it was butchered and who butchered it and how it was prepared and all it of can. that. Yeah. yeah, things you can eat together, things you can't eat together, how long you have to wait before you can eat something after you eat something else, what kind of plates you eat on. You know, some people have six sets of dishes, you know, depending on the situation. I simplified those rules for myself and for my family who 
you know, sort of followed down that. But I, for myself at least, I simplified and said, this is what I'm going to do just to stay sane. So I think probably I escaped the ortho. The orthorexia part of it. Well, that's good. But, you know, someone listening might hear it in themselves. And, you know, if you're struggling with the idea of scared to eat because it feels like it's going to hurt you, then, you know, that would be something to talk to a counselor about that understands eating disorders because it really can paralyze your life. And eating is supposed to bring you joy. Like, I really believe we're supposed to have the joy of eating. You know, obviously, like, my son Will can't eat shrimp because he's allergic to shrimp. So, you know, he has to stay for shrimp is dangerous. He has to stay away. But when you don't have that kind of an allergy, you know, you really should not go through life paralyzed with fear about food. And in support of being kosher, I don't want to badmouth being kosher. Right. One of the benefits of keeping kosher, if you do, is that the foods you can eat, you relish with more joy. The point is to have control over what you decide to eat. The point is to love what you actually are Mm -hmm. eating. You want to feel bad for what you're missing, you know, then it's healthy to feel bad. I wish I could eat that cheeseburger, but I can't. Right. So it's not a bad thing to keep kosher, but it can bring out the worst in someone in the wrong circumstances. I think that's a similar kind of a thing. Like someone has a diet that they follow, but like I said, someone who's a vegan or someone who's whatever it might be, it's not disordered eating to follow an eating protocol. It's not restrictive. It's not a disorder to be kosher. It's not disordered to be vegan, but it can become disordered when your thinking starts to get distorted around it. Yes. Well put. It's hard to explain, but people know it when they're feeling it. If people are thinking, I wonder if that's me, then it probably is. And you can work on that. So you've lost that fear. I have. I have. That's good. And I think probably the long fasting has also contributed to that. I wanted to talk about All right. Tell us about it. This was something new for me because, like I said, I've been fasting 25-hour fast since I was a kid. Right. No sweat. But then this idea that you could fast for 42 hours, 72 hours, like, is this really going to happen? Is this possible? I did my first 42-hour fast, I guess it was a year ago or something like that. And I'm used to the kind of weird sense you get where you don't eat when you're supposed to. But having fasted 24-hour fast for so long, you know, okay, I missed lunch. Dinner's coming around the corner. You know, I just wait till it's dark. But then dinner goes by and you don't eat. And then breakfast the next day and you don't eat. I thought, I didn't know what I thought was going to happen. But boy, I was like, this is odd. I don't feel tired. I, right. I pretty good. This is strange, you know. Oh, oh, it's time to eat? Okay. Maybe I had a little bit of a headache, but I was like, I thought I would be crawling on the ground. And I'm right. I'm actually better. That's and, what it's when you're fat adapted. Your body yeah. can do what it needs to do. And you miss the sensation of eating, the act of eating. And that's a big change for you because you said that earlier you just didn't want to eat. Like you were at the point where you didn't even want to eat, but now suddenly you're going along and not eating and you're okay with it. Yeah. And then when I did the 72 hour, that was the real weird one because like at the end of that 72 hours, I was feeling in terms of mood as calm and as healthy as I've ever felt in my life. I felt like relaxed, like a lot of my mental quirks were gone. I was just like- This is what it feels like to be normal. I don't want to eat. Do I have to eat? (laughs) You do. Breathitarian is not really a thing, everybody. (laughs) That's why the clean fast made such a difference because I started feeling like that on a regular basis with the clean fasts. 
with the regular right. fast. That's good. But, you know, I want to pop this in there just because, yeah. you know, it's in fast feast repeat. You saw it. 72 hours is the max that I would want anyone to ever do unless you're under medical supervision. And the purpose of a 72-hour fast is not for quicker weight loss. I just want to make that always very, very clear. And, of course, I know you did not come to it for weight loss. No, in my at case. All. Yeah. But no. sometimes people will think, well, if it's good to, you know, fast for 19 hours, then I should just throw in like a 172 hour fast every week. No, please don't do that, everybody. You know, we want to fast and feast and we need to balance it. So for anyone who does alternate daily fasting, like 42, 36, whatever, you balance it. Like maybe you do 36 and then 12 and then 36 and then 12. You're balancing the fasting and the feasting with the 72 for health purposes, you want to balance that with maybe a few days where you're having your refeed. You know, you fasted for 72, you maybe have three days where you're refeeding because we definitely don't want to overfast. So I just yeah, want to yeah. pop that in there. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm glad you said that, of course, and I'm a healthy person who also listens right. carefully to his body. And had yep. I needed to eat, I absolutely would have. But right. I didn't feel the need. I love that. That was something kind of shocking, I got to say. I think in a way it probably contributed to the change of my mindset. Like, I think when I ate, there was an additional fear that if I didn't eat, I would die kind of a obsession about eating not out of joy but to survive eating was always connected in some way with survival emotional survival physical survival so i got to eat lots and lots of food in case i never get to eat again you know right. i need to eat 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 and fasting for that long like guess what your body is going to be okay for a little while i was like this is interesting you know i'm actually not going to die yeah <laughs> our bodies are amazing yeah it took some of the fear edge off of eating or not eating, both. I love that. You know, we're designed to be metabolically flexible. We're designed to be able to go without eating or eat when food is available. And that's the way we're meant to be. But we lose that in the modern yeah. day with the way, you know, we're eating around the clock. And being able to be metabolically flexible again and do things in the fasted state, be active in the fasted state, and you don't die or feel terrible or collapse on the floor. You know, I was just at a conference in Arizona for five days, and everybody knows I'm intermittent faster, but they still act surprised when I don't eat. <laughs> like we're sitting at lunch, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to eat that. 
There you go again. And they're like, what? I'm like, no, I'm just going to sit and talk to y'all. They're like, well, don't you want to? I'm like, no. Aren't you hungry? No. <laughs> I'm fine. So they still are like, you got to keep your energy up. No, no, my energy's fine. Wow. So I wanted to talk about your writing and your podcasting before okay. we run out of time. We've still got plenty of time, but tell us what you do. Well, I'm a professional musician, a music educator. Um, I'm a lifelong author, and I have a podcast as well called Truer MU, The Truth About Music, which is recent. So what's the Truer MU? Tell us about that. What's... Yeah, I'll spell it. T-R-U-E-R-M-U, Truer okay. MU. And you can okay. find it on YouTube that way. All right, um, perfect. This was something... I've been a music teacher for 20 years, a musician for longer than that. Music for me was one of those things where when I finally, I was, wasn't probably until I was about 17 or 18 that I recognized this is actually going to be the thing that I can use to get to everything else. Like this is my 10 foot pole, you know, mm -hmm. with this, I'm going to be able to understand everything else. So it was good for me. And I started a podcast during the pandemic. I was Zooming my piano lessons. And I said, wait a minute, Zoom is this perfect studio. Why don't I try to interview people? And I started interviewing people and some of them were even famous people. I reached out to them and got some famous people on my show. And that was really fun. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to make millions of dollars doing this. This is really great. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and I, of course, I'm giggling because no, right. that's not the podcast world, is it? And no, after the famous people went away and, you know, my subscriber base did not go up to millions. I was like, OK, right. this is something else. And what I found out very recently was that these podcasts are actually questions I'm asking myself. I'm not creating podcasts necessarily for you. There's podcasts for people who want to learn more about jazz, film scoring, all different aspects of music. But really, they're questions I want to know. They're things I want to know. And these questions are taking me deeper and deeper somewhere else. They're helping me discover something about what self-love is. It's fascinating. I'm really surprised by where the interviews have gone. So tell me some more about that. What do you mean by that? Well, my most recent interview was from a friend of mine from college. We were in the choir together, and he's a musician. So I wanted him on my show because he discovered he was autistic at age 40. Okay. He didn't get the wow. diagnosis till then. Right. And I thought, you know, he's a musician, and music was part of that process. I'd like to get him on. And just talking to him about discovering who he really was and owning that and being able to come out publicly and say, this is who I am. I'm neuroatypical. It got me thinking about myself and, you know, all the things around shame that I'd felt growing up and being a person throughout my life. Oh, I'm ashamed of this. I'm ashamed of that. I need to fix myself. I need to fix myself. And this podcast made me think, no, what if I was just this person with challenges and strengths? And I work on the challenges and I enjoy the strengths, but I take that as who I am rather than something that needs to be fixed. And it was just a joy for me to have that discovery through this podcast. I love that. And, you know, this resonates with me so much because, you know, I've got two boys. Everyone who's listened for a while knows that. And one of them is your delightful left brain child who gets straight A's at Georgia Tech and goes down the path he's supposed to go down, right? Supposed to in quotation marks. Then I've got my right brain child, my neuroatypical musician artist son. And I really think our world is set up for those left brain follow the rules, people to get the rewards. And everybody on the other side feels like they don't fit in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard and it's difficult to be that person. Yeah, absolutely. That was the gist of the interview to some extent. It's one thing to have the experience of feeling like you've been left out, but not know why. 
And it's right. another to know why. And if you know why, at least you can address it. Say, okay, I'm being left out because I am not able to fit into this social situation. I don't know how to do it. Okay, what can I do about it? I can get help. I can ignore these situations. Then you know what the problem is. You can fix the problem. But until you know there's something actually different about you, then you just think you're a failure. You know, right. Everybody else is having fun at this party. I'm not having fun at this party. I must suck. Right. It goes back to the whole school experience. Of course, you know, I was a teacher. Yeah. You're a teacher as well. Yes. But those kids do not fit the mold of what school expects of them because school was set up by your left brain teachers who want you to sit in your desk. Right. <laughs> Keep your shoes on. Don't wiggle. Yeah. And even as a music teacher, because I was in public schools for 11 years teaching music, you know, best opportunity, right, for these neuroatypical kids, you know, we'll do things a little different. And the systems tend to push you back towards, well, can you document what you've done? Can you get it into this testing thing? We're evaluating you on this, this, and this. Have you got this, this, and this in your room? Are your kids sitting like this? So, Oh, yeah. as a Georgia teacher, I know. So what was that period of time that you were in the public school in Georgia? Well, I've been out for about six or seven years, and I'm probably going back. It's time to you go think back. think so? I yeah. am. Yeah, I think so. But yeah, they, so this was, by the time I was getting in there, it was late O's, and I was in there until like, actually, yeah, I, I taught until 2017, I think, in the public schools. Right? That was when it was really like the most difficult. It started to get crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, write yeah. your standard on the board, have your children do this and that. Remember when yeah. the kids were supposed to rate you? Kids had to do like a questionnaire about you and if they liked you and it was, was going to make our pay or not. It was you're taking me back to trauma here. Yes. It was traumatic. Look, I cannot express how traumatic it was for a teacher who loved to teach. I couldn't wait. Once I realized that it was a prison, I couldn't wait to get out of it, which is so, <laughs> it's sad. Yeah. It well, did feel traumatic for us, for the kids, for everybody. Right. And hopefully it's better now. We'll see. The pandemic is the game changer and we'll see what has changed. In any case, it is possible as a music teacher to work with the children who don't get seen. And yeah. uh, that is the part I love the best. And the kids who are the most trouble tend to be my favorites for that reason. I like I those kids too. I like the creative kid who, you know, like I would have a second grade teacher say, oh, you're going to hate him. He, and then he would come to me and I would love him. He would be like one of my favorites because thinking out of the box is, I like the kids who think out of the box. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But school is not really set up for those kids, like I said, which is sad. So if you get back in the regular school, I hope that it has been transformed to some degree by the pandemic. Well, the point is that I have been transformed. Oh, well, that's, that's about, even more important. Yeah, especially these last few years that I've been away with the podcast and with the fasting. All of these things have contributed to changing my mindset about myself. And so I'll be going into that situation a different person and hopefully maybe a place where I'm more stable and can help more. That's good. Well, is there anything that you struggle with? Well, gee, you got another Related hour? Related to fasting. Related to fasting. How about Related that? Related to fasting. <laughs> yes, I, I still struggle with sugar. Like, you know, and my wife and I laugh because, you know, like I'm trying to stay off of sugar and then in the afternoon there's a plate of muffins sitting there. I'm like, Teresa, what did you? She's like, I know. I'm sorry. I just needed to cook the muffins. I'm like, well, right. do I have one or do I not have one? I don't know what to do now. Right. So, yeah, I still struggle with all of that. The mood swings are much better. The energy Good. level is much better. Depending on how much stress I'm under, you know, it gets worse or better. So managing the big stresses make the food stresses less acute. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, we are almost out of time. What would you tell someone just starting out with intermittent fasting or what do you wish you knew when you first started? Oh, read your book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Fast Feast Repeat. Did I get the yeah, title right? You got it. It's perfect. Just right. Yep. And I have a new one coming out. Everybody who's listening, you can still get it. 28-day fast start day by day. If you've struggled with making intermittent fasting stick, or if you're brand new, that's the one you're going to want. But it's a companion to Fast Feast Repeat. But I really do think that reading it, y'all, like you may think you know, but then you read it and you're like, oh. Yeah, it's very yeah. well laid out. Your writing style is very companionable, non-threatening, non-judgmental, and clear. Everything you need to know, no matter how skeptical you are or how, I don't want to say gullible, willing you are. Willing. It's, yeah. it's all well, there you. for you. It's all there for you. So you can take it wherever you want to take it. It was very important for me to have read that book. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. And, you know, I'm, that my teacher hat came through in that. And, you know, I, I'm a teacher, not a scientist, not a doctor, but... You know, I like to think that I got it right. If I got it wrong, that could have happened too. But <laughs> other editions may come. Well, we'll see. But, you know, considering how many actual doctors and scientists say the exact opposite things, they're like with studies, I guess it's hard to know because our bodies exactly. are complicated. Bodies are complicated. And the human body is hard to study. Well, you're giving people a chance to make up their own minds. You're not telling right. them to do anything. You're presenting the information as you see it and offering testimonials, and you're not claiming the absolute truth here. So exactly. that's you should do. And remembering that we're all very much a study of one. And, you know, there's nothing more powerful than proving it to yourself. Like with that vitamin C and you figured out, oh, my gosh, that made a huge difference for me. You know, I don't need to tell you the mechanism of action for why that vitamin C made it hard for you to fast. And, you know, I have some theories based on what I know as to what I think the mechanism of action that makes that hard would be cephalic phase insulin response things like that, probably waking up the digestive system in some way or another, interfering with your hunger hormones. But who cares what it is, really? The problem is you could feel a difference. So whatever the mechanism is, it doesn't matter. You just do what feels better. Yeah. Well, I have so enjoyed talking to you today, Adam, and please tell Teresa hello for me. I will. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this for months. Thank you for having me on. Do you have an intermittent fasting story to tell? Email me at jen at intermittentfastingstories.com and I'll add you to the lineup. That's G-I-N at intermittentfastingstories.com. The world wants to hear your story. That's it for today. Remember, I may have a doctorate, but I'm not a medical doctor. So don't use anything you hear on this podcast as a substitute for medical advice. Please always check with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have medical questions. I'll talk to you next week, Fasting Family, where we will hear another inspiring story. Have a great week and fast on. Intermittent Fasting Stories is edited, mixed, and mastered by Resonate Recordings. To learn more, visit them at ResonateRecordings.com or email them at hello at ResonateRecordings.com. Intermittent Fasting Stories listeners will receive a free offer if you mention that you heard it on the podcast. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. It's winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges. 
that will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win $200 million. Thousands, not million. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The GOAT. Stream free on Amazon Freeview or Prime Video.